Thank you, worship team, for those songs. And uh, <clears throat> I got overwhelmed just singing those hymns as, a, as we think about our Savior. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, please open to Hebrews chapter 1. going to preach the first three verses in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read for us this morning the, the whole chapter. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. We have made the purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he, had, he had, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a, friend, a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And we, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angel, angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter in the scepter of his kingdom, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like garments, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Lord God, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. In your son's precious name. Amen. What well, is a unique privilege to be able to preach in this little series um, in this month of December? Uh, Pastor Henry has given me the instruction to be able to preach on this topic about the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, Pastor Henry preached on the death of Christ and why that is important, and how in order for us, in order for us to have the New Testament, this New Covenant, death has to happen. 
And Jesus Christ died for that particular purpose that moves us from one age to another, that we are now in this New Testament age, in this new covenant, because of the death of Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that Jesus is the topic of all topics. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he is the Alpha and Omega. And after all, this is why we're called Christians, right? We're called Christians because we're following Jesus. We worship him. He is what we are all about. And today, I get the unique opportunity to preach from this book about the life of Jesus and why Jesus' life is essential. The book of Hebrews is written by a a believer that has extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. Some people argue that is the Apostle Paul because of how he links certain passages to Christ. Other things that it could it's anonymous, but I think whoever it is is someone that, that understands the importance of Jesus Christ. And that all of these promises from the Old Testament, all of these sayings from Scripture is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And the audience, the people that are listening to this, are reading this, that have heard this message, they were Jewish Christians that were struggling. These were Christians that, that have, to, have given up their life to follow Jesus. And there are just these moments in their life where they feel pressure from the world. They're wondering, is Jesus Christ truly the Messiah? <clears throat> in a lot of ways, this book answers the question, why Jesus? Why is Jesus so important? This book, every single chapter and every single verse is supposed to show the listener, the original audience, that Jesus is supreme, that he is superior to all things, that he is essential. In their struggle, the original audience, their struggle really is not that far off from how the struggles that we have today. When we think about them and we think about our life, their questions that they have about Jesus is similar to the way the world questions us about our Savior. Why do you want to worship Jesus? Why Jesus and not Islam? Why Jesus and not any other religion? Or why Jesus and no religion? Why Jesus and not science? If we place ourselves in the same seat as the original audience, we realize that we share the same struggle. In other words, we need to believe and know and behold and cherish this Savior just as much as the original audience. We need to love this Jesus. And the attacks of the world that are at Jesus and at us is going to be the same, and it will continue to be that way until Christ returns. The church's greatest need is to know this Lord and to love Jesus more and more each day. This speaks again the supremacy of Jesus Christ. God revealed himself. He revealed himself through his Son. And it is important for us to know every aspect of his life. Today, we are going to focus primarily on his life. Why is Jesus' life so essential? And just like the original audience, the people that heard and read this, they needed to know why Jesus' life is essential so that they can have hopes, that they will not be discouraged, so they will not leave the faith. So it is with you and I today. I know that as the rising tide of antagonism and anti-Christ-like language and everything about um, being a Christian is wrong in this culture, we can be swayed. We can backslide. We can be tempted to leave the faith. And I want to encourage you just by looking at these 
few verses of why Jesus' life is essential so that you can continue on in the faith, so that you can be bold for Jesus Christ and so so that you can live in a way without letting go of the one that is supreme. So our first point, why is Jesus' life essential? Because in Jesus' life, he gives us divine revelation. Jesus' life gives us revelation. Notice the very first word in this entire book. It begins with God. God is the main character of the Bible. He's the most important person in all of existence. This book doesn't begin with creation because creation has a finite point. It begins somewhere. There was nothing and God spoke everything into existence. This book doesn't even begin with the church because the church is finite and it has a starting point. It begins right after when Christ ascended into the heavens and the Holy Spirit entered into the disciples and Pentecost. That's when the church began. This book begins with God. It is is almost as if the writer wanted the people who are struggling with Christianity, who are wondering whether or not this is the true God, he starts by saying, God. God revealed himself. And this is where we find God. If you want to find God, if you want to find salvation, look no further than Jesus Christ. This is where we find salvation. How, but how did he reveal himself in the past? It said in the passage that he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. How did he do it? Well, we know in the beginning, in Genesis, God was walking and dwelling with man. He was, ha- he was with Adam and Eve. He spoke to them directly. And we know as time progressed and sin entered into the world, God spoke to different people through, through dreams. Uh, God spoke to Moses beginning by a fire, burning bush. Uh, we're going through the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers tells us that there was a pillar of fire and a cloud in the, in the, in the day and the, or the night and a, and, a, and a cloud in the daytime and a fire at night. God revealed himself uh, through prophets and dreams and visions, and he even used animals to communicate truth. All that God has done, all the things that God has, re- has revealed himself in the Old Testament is recorded down for us to know him. God spoke in many ways and has revealed himself long ago. But notice it says here, in these last days, there's a dividing line between the early days or the past and the last days. There's a contrast here between the past and these last days. It's written here before as to our father, forefathers, and now it's written to us. Before it was through the prophets, and now it's through his son, and it before and through many and various ways, but now it's only through Jesus Christ. Jesus' life is that dividing line of all history. Our secular cultures will try to divide a common era and before common era, but if you ask them where does that line begin, they'll have to say the birth of Jesus Christ. They try to erase it. They try to make uh, people not remember it, but they still have to submit to it. We learn about God now because of the spoken words of Jesus Christ. All the things that he has taught the disciples, they wrote down. They were eyewitnesses to these things. First Peter tells us that Peter and his other disciples, they were witnesses to the transfiguration. They saw Jesus Christ, and because of the things that they've seen, because of all the things that they've witnessed about Jesus Christ, they're willing to lay down their life. Because Jesus is Lord. 
We are in the last days, and this should make us think about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It should make us think about that one day, soon, Christ is going to return. And in these last days, Jesus made himself known through the scriptures. And the scriptures is designed um, to build up Christians and to win the loss. The Bible is it's God's revelation to us. He speaks about himself. In the Old Testament, God used a group of sinful men, but now he speaks through his perfect son. If Jesus did not come into the world, we'll probably have to just wait and see some supernatural act to happen in order to get some sort of revelation. Now the problem is that we see in our day and age is that there are those who claim to have visions from the Lord, but oftentimes they are self-serving and they're against the scriptures. Jesus came and spoke, and we know who God is and what God is like because of Jesus Christ. In these last days, if you want to know the mind of God, you need to hear the words of Jesus Christ. This is here in the text that is in his Son. When Jesus spoke, God spoke. God no longer needs frail and imperfect messengers to represent him or speak for him. Rather, he came into the world and spoke himself. This word, these two words, has spoken. It's a very key word here in these first four verses um, because it's the main verb here. It's like this is the main idea that Jesus has spoken. Now, this word, these two words, is used 30 times throughout this, or a little bit more than 30 times throughout this whole book to speak of how God has spoken and we need to hear him. Jesus used words to communicate, and this is why Jesus' life is so important. He came and he spoke to people. He taught his disciples, and the apostles wrote everything that the Holy Spirit allowed them to remember down. Every New Testament writer was at first a student and a learner directly from Jesus Christ. Every and other religion does not operate in that way. They are not, their truth does not originate from the Lord, but they were really witnesses of Satan. Notice in the passage, when he appointed heir of all things, Jesus came to redeem a people for himself. He will inherit the universe and everything in it. Jesus will sit on the throne and rule everything, and life culminates in Jesus Christ. Before then, Jesus came to teach he taught us about him. He taught us what we need in order to be close to him, how we can even belong to him. Every bit of this world belongs to the Lord. Notice in the passage in the end of verse 1 it says, or verse 2, it says, through whom also, all, uh, through whom also he made the world. And in the middle of verse 3 it says he, he, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. This affirms the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't created by man's imagination. Rather, he created the man with imaginations. Not only that, but he, not only did he create man on this earth, but he created the earth that he stands on. Not only that, he just created the earth, but he created the vastness of the universe where the earth suspends on nothing. Jesus made it all, and he holds it together by the power of his word. Now, if you just think about this, when Jesus was an infant... When he was a toddler, he could have said some random words or, or thought something bad, and, the, and all of reality can just unravel. But even in his infancy, even when he's a little kid, he kept all of existence together. 
How? Through the power of his word. We see here the power of our Lord. He sustains this world through his word. Jesus' words are powerful because Jesus himself is powerful. You know, scientists are always trying to look beyond the stars, and when they get to a point where they don't know how and they don't understand certain things, they just, they're just they're confused. They see how everything is orderly, but there's no answer to it. And then sometimes they go deep down and try to study every little molecule. They, they don't understand why does everything work so perfectly. And we know as Christians, just like all the little kids in this church know, that the answer is because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, everything in all of reality operates the way that they do. God spoke it, and he also sustains it through his word. Jesus made this universe, and then he, ex- he keeps it. And he also enters into it. He spoke again. He came into the world that he created to save those that are in the world. Jesus' words is powerful because, because again, Jesus himself is powerful. And what is more amazing than the fact that God can speak all of reality into existence is the fact that he can change us from one state to another. That he can make people that are spiritually dead into spiritual life. That those that were living in darkness can now live in the light. His words can change us from one state to another. His words are powerful and must be taken seriously. It should amaze us that God is willing to communicate with us, that he has made a way for us to hear him and to know him. What is man that, God gets, that man gets attention and audience with God? You know, we live in a technological, advanced, relatively <clears throat> advanced age. Usually when I, in my own sinfulness, when I text people and they don't respond back, I get annoyed. It's like, how dare that person not respond to me? And that's just a selfish, prideful entitlement. But when we think about God, we have no such privilege. We are but dust, but yet God is still willing to communicate with us. He revealed himself to us through his Son. God could have remained silent, and it would have been perfectly fine and just because we are unworthy to hear from him. But in his grace and his kindness, he chose to reveal himself to all of us. So when we read scripture, do you realize that you're encountering the God that spoke all things into existence? We're encountering the Lord whenever we read his word. You must take God's word seriously, and that includes all that he has said and all the things I've said here on earth. There is a difference between just hearing something and and listening to something. You must hear Jesus. Jesus said that those who have ears, let them hear. And he's not talking about the physical ear. He's not saying, that oh, if you're the vibrations in your ear canal, uh, make sure those things work and hear my voice. He's not talking about the physical aspect of listening. He's talking about hearing his words, understanding and comprehend what he's trying to tell us. We must learn to hear the word of Jesus that is recorded in Scripture. God wants us to not simply listen to the noise about Jesus, but actually hear Jesus' word that is recorded in Scripture. God wants us to know him through the spoken word of Jesus Christ. God's spoken his word. Now, are you hearing his word? This is why Jesus' life is essential, because he, came, he entered into the world And all that he said is recorded. No other religion is like that. Only biblical Christianity speaks of God who created the world and entered into the world to communicate with those that are in the world. 
he came and spoke to the disciples, and the disciples wrote all that they've learned about Jesus Christ. When you are investing your time in studying scripture, you're investing in learning about this God. Your relationship with God is dependent on how much you know about him through his word. Jesus has given us his final statement. There will be no more words that will be added until he returns. And think about the original audience here when they heard about that, when they, when, when they realized that Jesus spoke, God has spoken through his, in his son. You know, many words were thrown at these original audience. They were, they were unflattering words that were said about them, offensive words and even threatening words, other derogatory words. But the only way that they can find comfort, the only way they could silence those words is to find it in God's words. Jesus gives us the final revelation that we need from our God. So ask yourself, how was your time in God's Word this past week? Did you find yourself meditating and reading God's Word day to day, or is it just something that, oh, I'll do it some other time? It shouldn't be any surprise to any of us if you're backsliding and if your spiritual life is weaning and waning away because you're not spending time reading and knowing God. It shouldn't be a surprise why people deny the faith when they spend all of their time hearing the voices of other people as if they are from mere mortals instead of hearing from the God-man himself. Why Jesus' life is essential because in his incarnation we get divine revelation. And when we study that revelation from Jesus, we will walk closely with him. Doubt will be casted out because we realize that Jesus is God and he has spoken to us and everything that God has spoken in the past came true and everything that Jesus has spoken will come true as well. Ask God to give you the grace and desire to seek him through his word. Why is Jesus' life essential? Because we get divine revelation from God. But not only that, but that Jesus' life is Jesus' life is essential because it represents God's law perfectly. Jesus' life is essential not only because he gives us divine revelation, but because Jesus' life represented God perfectly. Look at the beginning of verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus spoke, and when he spoke, God spoke. And when Jesus acted, this is exactly how God wanted people to act. This isn't like us. When we talk about representing someone, usually when we tell a story about someone, oh, when so-and-so a few years ago did this, and we imitate people's voices, those aren't exact words. We can try our best to imitate their fluctuation and their tone and everything else, but it's not exact representation. It's not perfect. But this description doesn't, doesn't apply to Jesus. When Jesus speaks, it's exactly what God wanted him to speak. It is impossible to see God the Father because he is invisible, but when Jesus came... He, we see him, God incarnate. When you look at Jesus, you see the face of God. Notice this here, the radiance of God's glory. This means that the sun is out showing everyone who God really is. To radiate is to shine. It's to shine brightly. This is the only time in the entire New Testament that this word shows up. And Jesus here bursts forth and shows us exactly who God is. Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory. He is a part of the Godhead. It says here that he is the exact representation of his nature. 
We understand that this word exact representation is this, you know, when we look at our coins, we see these imprints of presidents, but that's not exactly the, the guy. I mean, the original guy, they didn't have photography back then. They had people draw those pictures out, and they tried to figure out, well, this is probably what his silhouette would look like. Those aren't exact representations, but with Jesus, he is the exact representation of God and his nature. You know, in English, we have this word spitting image. Oh, he's a spitting image of so-and-so. That word is actually softened from the word spirit and image. Spirit and image. You know, spitting image is very, you say it very quickly, it's just spirit and image, you know, that's what it turns into. And the idea is when you, when you say that is that that person acts and looks like another person. Some of you are parents here, others of you are grandparents, and you might look at your kid, or you might look at you and look at your parents, or you look at you and your kid and say, hey, that person, or that, yeah, that person looks like you. You look like your dad, or you look like your mom. But no matter how close they may look like to one of the parents, you realize it's not perfect because there's the other parent. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father in his nature. Jesus is the perfect imprint of who God is. If you put it all together, it means that if in Jesus, he preserves the nature of God and attribute in human form. The Son provides a perfect and true and trustworthy picture of the Father. Even the birth of Jesus represented God's plan perfectly. Every gospel begins by pointing to something in the Old Testament. Jesus is linked to something that God has said in the past. Every gospel begins with something that's beyond that point. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17 begins with the royal bloodline. We see how Jesus is not just some random child, but that he, you can trace this bloodline all the way back to the Davidic gov, uh, bloodline, to, to David himself. God has said to David that through him, this is where the Messiah will come from. In the book of Mark, it begins by speaking of this forerunner, that before Jesus is born, there's going to be someone crying out in the wilderness, and he's going to tell the world and prepare the way for the Savior. In the first three chapters of Luke, it does exactly the same thing in terms of paralleling both Jesus and John the Baptist. It's showing you how the prophecies are being fulfilled. Everything is being lined up. And the, and the Gospel of John begins by saying that the, wor- the Word existed before time, and that Word became flesh. Jesus' birth was perfectly aligned with God's will even before he came into the world. And throughout his life, Jesus has represented God's Word perfectly. Jesus', was, Jesus life is, is, is just gives us an example of how we need to live here in this world as well. Jesus' life points us to our God. Jesus' life is how life is supposed to be lived. He shows us what faithfully representing God looks like. Jesus instead is described as, as someone that even overcome temptations of the world. Hebrews chapter 4, verse, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This means that part of Jesus' life is to overcome temptation. You know, there's a theological debate with these type of verses. Like, well, if God is perfectly holy, does that mean he's unable to sin? Or was it even really temptation? Or does he not have the physical ability to sin? That's why uh, he can't fall into sin. And the answer is, is yes. And for us, when we are tempted, it doesn't take much for us 
for our moral fabric to be shattered. Right? Just take a little pebble and just toss it in, and that little temptation, the little pebble temptation is just going to ruin us. But with the Lord, with our God, you can throw boulders and boulders of temptation, and he can withhold it. He does not break. Jesus has been tempted beyond any human comprehension to its fullest extent, and he was still able to overcome them. Jesus had it far worse than us, yet he overcome every temptation. He did so because he is God, and he represented God faithfully and perfectly. He still had to fight those temptations, even though he knew he will have victory over it. Well, does that matter if he knew he was going to have victory over it? Well, yes, it does. Because just think about the other instances in Jesus' life. When Christ knew that he was going to die, he also knew he was going to be resurrected. But he, that did not diminish the fact that he was afraid and, and had to feel the pain, that his suffering was real, even though he knew that beyond this point, Beyond death, he will come back one day. And the point of this is this, that we need to worship this Jesus. Jesus understands our struggles because he was tempted far worse than we did, and he did not sin. He can sympathize with us. And the only way he did so was to come into the world and experience it himself. He never failed. The life that we read in the pages of Scripture is written historically accurate. It's given us a perfect account of his life. And the listeners then, just like now, need to take the written account of Christ to heart. The only way anyone can be saved is by reading about this Jesus, this life of his, and believing in it. Do you realize that the first generation of believers and the last Christians that will enter into glory, those two people are going to get into glory only by hearing God because the people in the context of Hebrews had no idea what Jesus looked like. They were not there. They, did not, they were not eyewitnesses to them. They heard about Jesus, they read about him, and they believed him. First Peter chapter 3, First Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of faith the salvation of your souls. The things that we know about Jesus. We love a God essentially that we've never seen before. And the things that we've read, we understand that this is not even complete. There's so much more about our Savior that we do not know. John chapter 20, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And one of my favorite verses is the last verse in the book of John where John writes, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written out, written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. There is so much more that we don't know about our Savior. But all that is revealed, all that we have, all that is documented is for us to know him. The scripture testifies of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. He shows us how we can be drawn close to him. He shows us how we can represent God perfectly. Jesus' life is essential because it shows us how we are to live and how we are to be drawn closer to him through faithful obedience to his word. If you want to honor the Lord, if you want to honor God and be blessed by him, you must live like Jesus Christ. And Jesus lives Jesus' life gives us a template, an example of how we need to live in a fallen world. Are you abiding in God's word to represent him faithfully in this world? How much more do you look like Jesus today than you did a week ago? Are you seeking scripture, particularly the life of Christ, to give you an example on how you need to live? Why is Jesus' life essential? It's because it gives us divine revelation, and also it shows us what a faithful representative of God looks like. That Jesus represented God's law perfectly here on earth. And third, Jesus' life is essential because Jesus' life is lived to purify our sins. Jesus' life is lived so that our sins can be purified. Look at the, look at, uh, look at the, um, toward the end of verse 3, when he had made purification of sins. The author here wants to address one of the biggest concerns that the original audience had. How can a person be made right with God? It is, as, is it through the Old Testament laws? Is it through all the ceremonial laws? Or is it through Jesus Christ? Here, the writer states that Jesus' life came for the purification of sins. Jesus is the supreme offering for sin in the new covenant. Jesus' life allows himself to be the perfect sacrifice for man to be forgiven of their sins and to be in the presence of God. Our sin defiles us. There is no way for any of us to work our way into heaven. There is no way that any of us can purify our sin by our own ability. This again speaks to the Lord and incarnation and the importance of it because it shows you his atoning work. The reason his life is essential is because he came to purify the sins of the world. Purity is essential, is an essential condition to be in the presence of God. Our God is holy and you cannot go to him unless you are made holy. And there is nothing that you can do to obtain this holiness on your, on your own. So it must be given to you. Jesus lived the perfect life to purify us from sins and to give us a template on what a perfect life looks like. And there is no way for anyone to purify themselves from the sins that they have committed in this life. The writer of Hebrew draws upon something that they already know, that for 
someone to be made right with God, something needs to die. In the Old Testament, you cannot bring a corpse to God to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord. The animal has to be alive and then killed. This animal has to be a certain age, which implies they had to live for a little while. Blood had to be spilled, which means that something needs to be drained out of it. Sin can only be washed away by the life of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 to 14 tells us this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through this eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? Chapter 10, verse 11. Every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool to, for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit testified to us, to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says, well, I will put law upon their hearts and on their mind, I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will not, I will remember no more. And where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sins. Understand that because of what Jesus has done, having made a, a way for us to be made right with him, we don't need to do anything anymore. In fact, this phrase, having made, suggests that the purification was achieved in Christ's own person, and it will lay down the foundation for his own self-sacrifice. Jesus Christ, who made the world, is the one who made purifications for the sins of the world. These Jesus purified us through his own blood and through his life, the perfect life that he lived. But Jesus purified us in two ways, in the eternal sense of salvation, but also in the day-to-day in sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we grow more and more holy, meaning that we look more and more like Christ. The way to overcome sin in this life is not to simply Feel guilty over your sin. Yes, there should be guilt, but the guilt that we have that, that we should feel it should be guilty because our sin is what nailed our Savior to the cross. How you can grow in Christ's likeness is to appreciate what Jesus has done for you. It's not <laughs> it's not just about feeling bad about your sin or wanting to flee from sin so you don't feel bad or guilty over your sin. Those things do not produce Christ-likeness. Those things do not produce sanctification. Sanctification only comes when your affections are changed. When you realize that Jesus lived that perfect life and you fail to live it every single day, then you begin to truly grasp, wow, our Savior is a good God. He is so good to us that he lived this perfect life, something that we fail constantly. He didn't even fail a moment. 
And that is what helps you purify your sins. When you see how good God is to you, you want to flee from those sins as well. Why is Jesus' life essential? To give us divine revelation, to represent God perfectly, to purify us from our sins, and lastly, it is to finish his redemptive work. Why is Jesus' life essential? Because in Jesus' life, he came to finish his redemptive work. Notice at the very end of verse 3, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a reference to the passage that I read in the, in the call to worship, Psalm 110, verse 1. There is a finality to the work of the Son. The work is done. He came to undo the failures of Adam. He sat down because the work of redemption is complete. It is done. There is nothing to be added to it. This is the doctrine of our own redemption. There's nothing more that you can do to inherit a salvation. There's nothing more that you need to do because everything is completed. Colossians chapter 2, starting verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your trans- uh, transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, having canceled out the, cer- the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It is because of what Jesus has done in his death. He now sits in the right hand of the Father. This is why here right hand represents the highest honor in the ancient ancient Near East. Uh, To sit on the right hand of a king shows supremacy. And this is a place of authority and power. And for Jesus, the Son of God, to sit on the right hand of God shows us that Jesus, the Son, has unlimited power. Although Jesus is known as the Son, which sounds like Jesus is somehow subordinate to the Father, it is only functionally, as opposed to being subordinate in his essence. This means that when Jesus was willing to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, it doesn't diminish his worth because he has submitted to the Father. It says here, the majesty on high. This is a reverential way of exalting Jesus and thus empowering and emphasizing the supreme greatness of Jesus Christ. The writer here wrote this to impress upon the listener and to impress upon us the inexhaustible greatness of Jesus Christ. The life of Christ is culminated at the cross, and this is why he said it is finished. It is indeed done. There is assurance here knowing that Jesus has completed everything that is needed in order to get salvation. The incarnation is needed in order to give us atonement for our sin. Jesus lived life as the greatest and perfect sacrificial lamb, and he was also the great high priest and even the exalted king. 
in Jesus' life and death, it resolves the Adamic problem. Why is the doctrine of the incarnation so important? Because it allows us to know that the work of atonement is finished. Jesus lived that perfect life, and now we can live in peace. We are now free from the bondage of sin. The weight and the guilt of our sin is lifted. He lived that one perfect life and died the death in our place. It's not like the other religious groups that tells you you need to go somewhere or you need to do something, you need to say some sort of prayer. No, in Jesus, because of Jesus' life, we have eternal life. If you hear today and you're struggling with doubts, you're struggling just like the original audience, if you're wondering whether or not this Jesus is worth it, the writer here is encouraging you by looking at the life of Jesus. He's telling you that Jesus is supreme. He does so by telling you that Jesus gives us divine revelation, that all that we know about the Lord, everything that, that is to come, Jesus has spoken to, to the disciples that are recorded for us to read. Jesus' life represents God perfectly. When we see his life, there's not a moment where he has sinned or have done something that was a violation of God's perfect standard. He lived that perfect life, and we marvel at the fact that he is able to do it, and it purifies our sin. We appreciate the Lord more because we know that we fail constantly. We are frail human beings. We can't live up to God's standard every single day. But by God's grace, because of his perfect life and his redemptive work, everything is paid for. And that should cause us to love him more each and every single day. And that should cause us and give us assurance and to love him and desire him more. The original audience, they needed to hear this. And so do we today. We need to understand that Jesus Christ lived that life for us. He lived, and when as we look at his word, as we study it, we will become more and more like our Savior. Now, there are some of you here who have not given your life to the Lord. You think that in your self-righteousness, in all your good works, that you're able to stand before God. You present to him, look at all the good things I've done. Look at how many old ladies I helped cross the street, all the cats that I got out of the tree. You bring all your good works before the Lord, and the Lord looks at you and says, Depart from me. These are all filthy rags. None of these things are, are appealing to him. And this is where you, as a non-Christian, need to take, really to consider the fact that you are right now an enemy with God. That right now, if God throws you into hell and, and gives you the entire full weight of his wrath, that you, t- you deserve it completely. But yet God, in his kindness, gives you an escape And if you have not believed in Jesus today, I encourage you to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no way that you can be made right with this one true living God. God is described as a a burning flame to those who are at at war with him. And I pray that you would repent of your right deeds, of your self-righteousness, and place your faith in this Jesus who lived the perfect life and lived the right works for you so that you can have eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we're so thankful and humbled by your goodness and kindness to us. We do not deserve salvation by any means. There's nothing good about us where we are born haters of you. We're born wanting to dive headfirst into sin. But in your grace, and your 
loving kindness, you drew us to you. You chose to save us when we do not deserve it. Lord, I'm thankful that when we look at the scriptures that you preserved, that you allow us to see just a glimpse of, of, of your son and how he indeed lived that perfect life. He was spotless. He was perfect. Nothing that he did was wrong. There was no slip of a tongue. There was no uh, sinful glance. He did everything right. And Lord, where we fall short every single day, the Lord overcame every single temptation. For 30-something years, he lived perfectly. Yet he died such a horrible death in our place so that we could be made right with you. Lord, we thank you. We'll never fully grasp the weight of your kindness, but we do pray that you could, through the Holy Spirit, enable us to just get more and more, greater understanding and appreciation for it. Lord, thank you for this time, and we do pray that as we go about our day, that we're filled with joy, knowing that you've came into the world and died in our place. Lord, may we tell others of the good news, that there is salvation that people no longer need to feel the weight of sin or the guilt of sin anymore because you have washed it away. And that because of your work, because of your blood sacrifice, we're all washed as white as snow. Thank you for this time we have. In your son's precious name, amen.